All right, hello everybody. My name is Laura Blessing. I'm a senior fellow at the Government Affairs Institute at Georgetown University. We're here with another podcast of Congress Two Beers In. I'm here with my colleagues, Mark Harkins. <laughs> who just who spilled a beer all, oh, all over himself. Who's currently committing is that one a party foul. Yes, it is. <laughs> and uh, Matt Glassman. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> and we're really delighted this week to <laughs> have Michelle Swerz on. Um, Michelle is a... Professor at the uh, government department at Georgetown University. Um, she's written uh, two books, uh, The Difference Women Make, The Policy Impact of Women in Congress uh, from 2002, and Women in the Club, Gender and Policy Making in the Senate, uh, also from U Chicago from 2013. Um, Michelle's an expert on uh, women in politics uh, as well as Congress. Um, and for those of you who are uh, introducing yourself to some of her works, I would recommend uh, her ledgebranch.org article, uh, 2018 Saw More Women Elect to Congress, Should We Expect Them to Govern Differently? Uh, as well as a Vox interview where she was interviewed by Lee Zhu, the striking parallels between 1992's Year of the Woman and 2018. Uh, when I was doing my preparation for this podcast, I ran into interviews with the person we are going to interview, which always tells me that we've invited the right person uh, to talk to us about women in Congress, as well as uh, this fa fascinating uh, incoming class and what to, to expect from some of these folks. So a big welcome, Michelle. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So kind of you to have done all that research about it. <laughs> <laughs> all those links now, all those watches, all those, all those views, now you know now. where they're coming from. <laughs> now someone besides my mother has looked at it. Aww. <laughs> So, uh, you know, uh, how, uh, how unusual should we think of 2018 as being? Let's start with a big 30,000-foot question. So 2018 is pretty unusual. I mean, people generally look back at 1992 as the year of the woman, and then they talk about 2018. So the difference between 92 and, and 2018 is 92, you know, you had some similar similarities in terms of, you know, sexual harassment being in the news with the Thomas Hill hearings then uh, as well as now. And it, both years were year of the Democratic women. So up until 92, you have very few women in Congress, but it was about even between Republicans and Democrats. And then 92 hits, and you just get this big increase, relatively, since it's still a small <laughs> number. Not they, go, they go up to 24. But, uh, <laughs> Six so, in the Senate. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so so there, there had been two women in the Senate, just uh, Mikulski and Barbara Mikulski and Nancy Kassbaum, and then yeah. you, know, you elected four more, and so, so you got right. six. So that was a, a, a big thing. But ever since then, when you look at the increasing numbers of women in Congress, it's always now on the Democratic side. So there's now many more Democratic women than Republican women. And then what was different about 2018 is now you elected a more diverse crowd of Democratic women. So you got the first right. two Native American women and the first two Muslim women in Congress and the first Hispanic women from Texas coming into Congress. So it's a, it's a much more ethnically, racially, religiously, diverse crowd than you've seen in the past, but you still have the same pattern of it's only on the Democratic side. So you only got one new Republican woman. I mean, as it net, they lost. They lost, they yeah. Lost. So like they were minor. at like 23 and they're down at like, you know, 13 or yeah, something like that in, in the House. Time. So they're, they're at uh, the lowest levels, you know, since, you know, it's got to be the, the 1960s or 70s or something like that. But uh, what makes that sort of 
difficult in terms of congressional patterns is on the Democratic side now, you have women who are gaining seniority so that in this Congress, you now have women who have enough seniority to be chairs and have mm -hmm. some power in the House. On the Republican some side... very important committees, too. Right. On the Republican side, there's hardly any women. And then, you know, they are moving out of Congress. A whole bunch just lost re-election. Well, who's held the majority for most of the time in, you know, since 1994 has been yeah. the Republicans, which means that when Republicans are in control, women don't have all that many seats at the table. They have more seats at the table when Democrats are in control of the agenda, but they haven't been in control most of the time, at least certainly not yeah, four years in the, the last House. 25, right? Yeah. So... Uh, the unevenness and the fact that Congress generally runs on seniority, if I want a good committee assignment, if I want to be a chair, sort of limits where and when you see women having power. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, are there institutional reasons for this? I mean, the lack of an EMILY's list on the Republican side, that sort of thing? So certainly EMILY's list is very helpful on the Democratic side. I've done some work with Danielle Thompson about uh, congressional donors and who you like to donate to. And sort of what we see is that Women who donate to the Democratic Party, like like Democratic men, like liberals, right? So they're going to be more likely to donate to liberals. But that the women, once you take into account how competitive is the seed, is this an incumbent, the things that usually predict donation, the Democratic female donors, over and above all those things, want to donate to a Democratic woman. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, Republican donors, now most donors are men, so women donate about a third, right, of what's going to be... On the Republican side? On, on, on overall. Overall, right, overall. But so women on the, on the Republican side, though, if I'm donating on the Republican side, both male and female Republican donors don't really care about gender. They care about ideology. They care about conservatism. So a female Republican donor isn't any more likely than a male Republican donor to want to donate to a female candidate. And... Those donors actually want an even more conservative candidate. The female donors want an even more conservative candidate because hardly any women donate. So these have to be some, you know, committed Hardcore, people yeah. uh, to to want to donate. So while Republicans certainly need an Emily's list, the donor population of a Repu of the Republican Party is not overwhelmingly open to that idea. They believe in conservative ideology. They believe in advancing based on merit. You know, they don't see gender, and so they don't necessarily buy into the cause of, well, I need to elect women, probably until it becomes necessary for the party in some way. So you have Elise Stefanik now who started, you know, repackaging her EPAC to try to elect women. She's not the first, though. They had Winning for Women. They have Maggie's List. There was a donor survey that was done uh, by Melody Crowder-Meyer and Rosalind Cooperman where they show that... Uh, while most Democratic donors have heard of Emily's List and others, Republican donors have never even heard of the groups that right. are focused on women, so yeah, they're not going to feel like they need to donate to them. So the party can do things to, to help. I mean, you've seen uh, Lee Stefanik say that you know she's repurposing her pack and she's encouraged the NRCC to support women. And, you know, they got out of the box a little slow that Tom Emmer said, well, you know, we don't play in primaries because the, you know, the party committee doesn't like to play in primaries. And she said, well, I'm not asking permission. But then they, yeah, but then, you know, they made up. And when she had her big launch, they, uh, you know, Tom Emmer was there and Kevin McCarthy was there. And so I think if the leaders buy into the idea that, oh, perhaps we need this, but it, it has to be something where they feel like it's going to help the party in some way. So perhaps if they felt that seeing a sea of white at the State <laughs> of the Union with all the women dressed in white and then on their side, you know, 
you didn't find too many women, and that if that the panning of that is somehow concerning to them, you know, then maybe they'll try to invest more. Well, in those that's kind the of thing right now is you get the sense that there are some in the Republican Party who see this as a problem, right? Stefanik and and, and plenty of others too. But then there's a enormous set of folks who I don't even think perceive this as a problem for them, either electorally or. I don't know, on some sort of normative level, right? They just don't see this as something that needs to be addressed. I think that is in itself a big problem when resources are being decided yeah, I think without that's respect to it. They, yeah. they don't see this as, as, as an issue that needs to be dealt with in any way. And so it only becomes an issue if you feel it is somehow impacting your electoral future. Mm-hmm. So if it impacts their electoral future or if they... I mean, you do have a situation all, all the time, though, where... They do feel like when certain issues come up, and particularly if Democrats are going to hit them on being, you know, engaged in a war on women, let's say, or something like that, well, then they need women to be able to talk about it. And so if you don't have any that, that are there or that want to talk about it. So you saw, you know, after the Kavanaugh fiasco, uh, where they had to bring in a woman to ask the questions, what's the first thing that they've done when they organize the committees in the Senate? They put on the Judiciary Committee Marsha Blackburn and Joni Ernst, so you don't right. run into that kind of right. Because there were no again. women on the committee. There weren't then. any women before. In '92, Democrats did the same thing, but that was 1992 uh, when they put right. on Dianne Feinstein and Carol Mosley Braun after yeah. the you know Thomas Hill hearings. Right. And so they're doing you know a, a similar thing. But they had tried, when I was researching uh, my book for the Senate, they had tried to put Republican women on the Judiciary Committee in the past, and Republican women didn't want to go. Kevin Bob didn't want to be there. Right? So uh, she didn't want to be there. Uh, Elizabeth Dole would have been perfect right. for the committee, right? Mm-hmm. She went to Harvard yeah. Law School. And, but she felt that she wanted to do things that were more North Carolina-oriented, so she wanted yeah, armed she services. She was right? seen as a carpetbagger to Exactly. She was seen yeah. as a carpetbagger. She wanted to do banking. And so she didn't want to do that. And she felt that she had the support of women that were socially liberal and fiscally conservative. And while she was personally pro-life, she didn't want to draw attention to that. And the Judiciary Committee is a place where you just fight a lot about constitutional issues like abortion. You are not able to raise a lot of money from that committee. So it's not particularly attractive. If I have very few women, they'd rather be on finance or appropriations, you know, or something better. And, you know, Dole ends up losing later to Kay Hagan, still on this carpetbagger issue. But in truth, John Edwards was the one who was paying less attention to the politics, you know, of the home state because he traded Maria Cantwell for her seat on judiciary because he wanted to be there to, you know, question judicial nominees in preparation for his run. And and even at the very beginning, I mean, he was on the committee when he first got there and it was impeachment right away. And he became one of the stars in impeachment. That's Because right. he was one of the three or four guys who did it. You hit the North Carolina thing. Yeah. That, that yeah. I actually know. <laughs> yeah. um, and, but, you know, he rode that to a long, to a far degree until his own personal situation seemed to cause him some issues. That's right. Well, so interestingly. I, that's I mean, a lot. In, that, the, those words did a lot. It's a lot of restraint for someone on his um, second beer. Thank so you, yesterday <laughs> we had an interesting, one of the things we were talking about in the pregame was the motion to recommit. Right. And you had an interesting debate going on in the motion to recommit yesterday on the gun control legislation where the Republicans brought out a woman who had had domestic violence issues in Arizona, and she was trying to say, hey, we need to make sure that women be, are able not to have to wait to get a gun to protect themselves, and so she put out this thing. And there weren't a whole lot of people who could do that on the Republican side, but they brought her out. And then what did the Democrats do on the other side? They brought out Debbie Dingell to argue the other side, which was, 
I had this issue in my house. My father was an abuser. My father had a gun. My mother actually went out and got a gun. Then we as children had to worry about two guns in the household. Um, but that was it was interesting that the Democrats do have a lot more people to bring to these issues of family and caring, if you want to see it, as opposed to these kind of hard white men doing things. For the Republicans, it's a lot harder. They don't have a long bench. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, and this you see this on issue after issue. So gun control is one that you mentioned uh, when abortion is debated, as it frequently is, or Planned Parenthood. You think that the Congress was at least 75 percent female right. because uh, the Democrats bring down all of their women to talk about it. And the Republicans used to bring down uh, their doctors. So, I mean, abortion is an issue where Republican women have changed. So when you had moderate Republican women mm. like Nancy Johnson from Connecticut or Marge Rockma from New Jersey, they tended to be a little bit more pro-choice, and so they didn't want to speak on this, and they would just vote quietly with the Democrats. Now the parties are totally polarized on that, but you went through this period where Republican women wanted to vote for it but didn't want to be out in front. Now you have a group of Republican women that does want to be out in front. So Marsha Blackburn partially gets yep. to the Senate by yep. chairing that Planned Parenthood committee and you know that was right. part of her senate advertising and her announcement that you know she was uh, chairing that committee and, and and going against planned parenthood that was selling baby parts and so she rides that and so now people like her are willing to offer those amendments and you see that more and on the senate side uh, Joni Ernst has offered sort of the planned parenthood defunding amendment so they find they're able to find women now who have a reason why they want to do it as, as well and are willing to champion it. But then you do get into these situations where you see a woman who's not on the committee or something like that, and she becomes the person who's offering the amendment. And so then you kind of have this indication that, well, maybe they don't have anybody and they needed to find somebody to do this. So very often, Kathy McMorris-Rogers would be that person uh, in the House because she was in leadership. So you'd have her offering the Republican alternative to the Violence Against Women Act, as you're yep. talking about, because, boy, it's really difficult to argue uh, as a Republican that I don't want to support you know, funding for domestic violence prevention and things like this. And it's so easy for the Democrats to characterize them in a negative way there. And they have, you know, they have objections to specific things, so something related to tribal lands or something related to gay rights, and they are in support of the larger bill, but you know, Democrats have these things in it that they can't support. And so they need somebody to offer the alternative. So you have to have an alternative bill that you can say, I'm supporting this, this bill is even better. And then you get a woman to you know, be the sponsor on that. And what's interesting is that the House is more conservative than the, the Senate even still. So in the House, when they were voting on this you know, in like 2012, and Obama's using this as a campaign issue for his presidential reelection, in the House, the Republican women stuck with the party and generally voted against the Democratic bill. In the Senate, the Republican women there voted for the right. Democratic bill, most of them, and even the ones that were a little more conservative, because they don't like the idea of the media portraying them as women who are against women. And they get much more scrutiny about it than, than anyone else. Susan Molinari had written uh, her own autobiography, and she was a congresswoman who was on the Hill in the 1990s, moderate yeah, from, what, Republican. From Long Island? Or yes, at least from exactly, New York. from, yeah. from, from uh, Staten Island. And so she uh, has this section of the book where she talks about the fact that she voted in favor of the partial birth abortion ban and got all of this flack for it, but she said, hey, look, Richard Gebhardt, you know, supported the partial birth right. abortion mm -hmm. ban, so why are you looking at right. me? Right, it was one of the leaders when, of the Democratic Party. Yes, but the leader of the Democratic yeah. Party is, you know, favoring this sort of thing. So for Republican women, it, it is sort of a hard stance because your party's asking you 
to protect it, right, and be the spokesperson. And in that way, you can get points with the party and maybe get something that you want, right. but you're also subjecting yourself to a ton of media scrutiny that's going to criticize you as sort of a woman being against women. You know, how can you do this? Yeah, it's so, interesting uh, to see how polarization has really um, erased other nuances uh, that have existed, um, as well as to see the House Senate differences, you know, continue to, to persist. Yes. Um, yeah. in, in our in our politics. Um, Michelle, aside from the, so we talked now a whole bunch about sort of the ascriptive representation of women and the dis differences in the party and sort of uses of women candidates. Could you talk a little bit about how uh, female Congress, uh, members of Congress, differ as policymakers? Um, I'm only vaguely yeah. aware of this literature, but I'm fascinated by it, and of course this person. is right in your wheelhouse, so please do tell. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, this is a question that gets asked, like, if I elect women, you know, will I bring world peace? And, uh, you, know, you mean they're not all Jeanette Rankin anymore? <laughs> <laughs> Discuss. And, and solve all of the budget problems, you know, and so certainly you'll see interviews with women senators, let's say, where they'll say, oh, yes, you know, if you just put us in a room, we could resolve this impasse, you know, and everything would would go on uh, forward wonderfully. So with that level of expectation, you know, no, that's not the difference that, that, that you find. So women, like men, are partisans first, right? So they support the party, they're going to vote with the party. Where you see the difference is sort of the, the policies that they will advocate for and prioritize. So any member of Congress sort of within a certain set of issues can choose what they want to do, and they have a limited amount of time and a limited, you know, uh, amount of political resources that they can utilize to pick what they're doing. And so women are much more likely, both Republicans and Democrats generally, to prioritize and be willing to uh, act on issues kind of related to the women, children, and family area of, of uh, policy. Conservative women, uh, perhaps a little less than the moderates and the, and the liberal women, but you know, they, they still get, get into these areas. But what's very interesting is when you have some power. So right now, as I said, that the Democratic women have more seniority. So the Appropriations Committee has several female, well, first the chair and the ranking yeah. member are both women, so Nita Lowy and Kay Granger. Right. And then you have several Appropriations Subcommittee chair that are women. And so you have Rosa DeLauro at the, you know, Labor Health HHS, right? Yes, Labor HHS. Yeah. Does and Captor have a subcommittee? Captors at Energy, yeah. I think. Yeah. Again, Again. Yes. <laughs> she's, I mean, she's like the highest ranking person on the Appropriations Committee by far, and she keeps changing subcommittees, and it's just yeah. wild to watch her. And then, uh, you know, you have Debbie Wasserman Schultz, Schultz is yep. a, with the military construction. So, I mean, she just did a hearing on treatment of female veterans. So, mm -hmm. whatever is sort of the very, you know, the interest of the committee chair, they have a lot of leeway to hold hearings, to do oversight on what they want to do. And you do see these women focusing in on issues, you know, more I related. I worked for Orson Schultz at House Appropriations um, when I was at Ledge Branch and she was the subcommittee chair. And she was always interested in women's issues as they spoke to the subcommittee. And, you know, it was me and another male staffer, two staffers on the committee. And we were always sort of taken aback, not like, not like in a bad way, but just surprised at how many women's issues cut across the legislative branch subcommittee. <laughs> yeah. con constantly coming up, yeah, yeah. and it was the kind of thing where uh, we were always like, huh, there's no way a, a male chair here would even be, these wouldn't be on their radar screen, right? And if they were brought up to them, they might deal with them, but she was kind of proactively after them. And that yeah. was the I mean, experience this, I remember. In terms is this of things like, let's make sure we construct bathrooms for them? I mean, what Absolutely. was this? Absolutely. Well, yeah. I mean, the fight over the 
the fight over there being no women's bathroom near the House floor yeah. was while I was at oh, Ledge, right? Wild. And it didn't get fixed until after the Democrats lost control. Boehner did it. That's part, you know, for some other reasons. But, yeah, she was on top of that. Yeah. But then it was also, I remember the biggest issue I dealt with there was the daycare center. Right. Mm-hmm. right? And, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the daycare center and also sort of um, maternity leave issues among staffers yeah. and all sorts of things like that, which are things that, of course, many... Um, you know, male representatives are interested in too, but she was prioritizing them in an agenda-setting way, gotcha. not just oh, reacting to them. And she's issues. trying to start like a, a mom's caucus now. I think, mm-hmm. uh, you know, within the uh, within the Democrats, anyway. Yeah, I gotta I gotta tell the Kay Hagen pool story at some point during this podcast. <laughs> I think it's it's required uh, listening. Oh, okay. I, I spoke to her and uh, she she told me like the full story of like how she got uh, you know the Senate pool open to women. And because, you know, it's, it's in the press that, like, sh- she was the, the starting point for this. But so she, so she wins uh, the race against Elizabeth, Elizabeth Dole, Dole uh, to be a uh, North, North Carolina senator. She's in there from 09 to uh, 15. And, uh, you know, she gets in there, first time being a U.S. senator, super excited about it, wants to represent her constituents, gets there early, um, and is someone who likes to exercise. So she goes to use the facilities, and she smells a pool and wants to use the pool, as one might, and finds out it's not open to her, and finds out that the reason that it's not open to her is that some male senators like to swim in the buff. And she goes back to her office, which is the only partly set up. She's got her chief of staff, I think her comms person, and she's like, you won't believe what just happened to me. And they're both like, dude, what? And what? You've got to make a big deal about this. And she's like, no, this is not a priority. We've got to do some legislation first. We've got to do this first. We've got to do that first. Like this, you know, like I know you're upset about this, but we need to like cool it. She said some like totally uh, anodyne line at some something public where she's like, oh, you know, like and gender, uh, you know, inequity is... You sometimes see it in surprising places, or like it still persists today in, in ways you don't expect. Totally anodyne line. Katie Couric hears it, uh, says, I wonder what's at the end of that string. I'm going to call on her and pull on that string. And apparently, what was at the end of that string was naked male senators. And <laughs> she gets uh, Chuck Schumer to, um, you know, advocate on her behalf. And, uh, after some, you know, after some discussion, eventually gets the Senate pool open to women. Um, and women still do not have a uh, locker room for the, the house, house gym the house facilities. So, you know, uh, they need a locker room of, of their own. Well, look, baby steps. We'll start with a bathroom near the house floor. That was 10 years ago coming up, and maybe soon we'll get a locker room. And, and this yeah. is a deal, right, in the house gym, because the members can come down. They yeah. actually do some business here, and yeah. the men are willing to use the gym because they have everything they, have they a need locker room. there. Yeah. The women, it's much harder. They go there, they work out, and then they're all they're sweaty and hot, and they've got to go walk across a whole yeah. office building. Out through the door where the staffers are waiting for their male yep. members who to have come already showered, who've yeah. already showered and everything, and they're you know, and it's just it's crazy. It's a mess. So takeaway <laughs> is that so. Uh, so in terms of different, um, I got off. I got us off on a pool tangent, but yeah. we've got a number of uh, women who are chairing committees and you know in, uh, working on legislation. I mean, which of these? And you know, we haven't mentioned uh, folks like Maxine Waters chairing financial services, um, although certainly appropriations is a really big deal. Um, you know, which of these folks are, are you watching in particular for to, to see what they do? So I am watching Maxine Waters because obviously she's a lot different than Jeb Henserling, who was there <laughs> when Republicans Just a titch. Uh, 
you know, and she mentioned that one of her priorities is going to be housing, right? And and yeah. housing issues and, and minority the, communities. The Watts area in right. LA. And she comes from a community that was really hard hit by the recession. And what's also interesting about financial services generally is a lot of the new freshmen that came on financial services are much more liberal. So on financial services, you know, you'll get a lot of members who take money from the banking industry, right? Both Republicans and Democrats, and the financial services industry is one of the largest donors that exist on the Hill. And these newer members are saying that they're coming on and they won't take any money from these industries. And they're and they're actively uh, saying that they're actively opposed to the members who do, which includes some of the other Democratic members who are on the committee and the moderate Democrats. So I'm certainly interested in how she navigates uh, those kinds of issues that she's going to have to deal with the, mm -hmm. with these various members of the committee. And she's got on the committee too uh, Katie Porter, who was an Elizabeth Warren protege. Mm -hmm. uh, and Elizabeth Warren was her professor when she was at Harvard Law School. And, you know, you can see there was a there was a hearing the other day with Equifax. Go find and, this clip, people. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> great and, clip. And she is questioning the head of Equifax because Equifax, you know, is fighting in court that people should be compensated for uh, Equifax, which is where you go to protect your identity and pay them, which had a big identity theft breach. And she's asking him, okay, uh, would you be willing to release your social security number and your address and these <laughs> other personal things right now in the committee hearing, <laughs> right? And he's totally, you know, flabbergasted <laughs> by that. And he's like, what, you know? And No, uh, they, they would said, hurt me. I've been right. my identity stolen. <laughs> you know, that wouldn't be good. And he said, I, I, then the head of Equifax said that I've had my identity stolen three times. Right? So this doesn't really make you confident if he's heading this company and he's had his own identity stolen three times and this is why he does not want to openly say this in committee. But you can see that she's sort of from that Elizabeth Warren tradition of here's how to take down a, a witness and you know make them look not very good. Her follow-up was incredible, right? And he said, well then why are your lawyers arguing that there's harm, there's no harm right. in this information having been breached? When you say there's harm to you if you give it to us, but you lawyers who you are giving the marching orders to say there is harm is no harm. Help me understand. Is there harm or is there not? I mean, she tore him up. It is a great three-minute clip that you got to go find. Katie yes, Porter definitely. on Equifax. Very interesting. But I'm watching the appropriations because, you know, in a divided government like we have right now, appropriations is really where all the action is going to be. You know, they're not really going to pass standalone legislation. They're going to they put gun control on the floor, but we know it's going to die in the Senate. They're going to put the DREAM Act on the floor, mm -hmm. but we know it's not going anywhere in the Senate. So anything you, that's you going anywhere... You don't think HR1 is going anywhere? Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to spoil <laughs> it for anyone. Oh, but, uh, shucks. Probably not having a lot of campaign finance reform or voting <laughs> law reform coming Spoiler down the pike. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, uh, it's the appropriations where they're really going to get anything done. And, and, you know, this idea of where do women make a difference, it's in these deciding where you're going to put funds and what's going to get funded. And what I'm willing to sort of stand up for and say, I'm not allowing you to cut that. And I'm expecting that Nita Lowy and people of her ilk are not allowing or want to increase money for women's health research and some of these other things that they were very involved with sort of throughout the buildup in the 1990s. And you can see that Rosa DeLauro is going to give a big hearing both to women's health research, but also to this idea of paid family leave. And there are even some rumblings on the Republican side that they at least have an interest in showing that they have an alternative. Mm. So they've had something called the Workplace Flexibility Act forever, which is essentially 
to allow overtime uh, instead of overtime pay to allow hours off instead so you, so you could just take time off instead of getting overtime pay um, but now they're talking about things like Rubio uh, and Mike Lee and Joni Ernst have something where you can borrow from your social security essentially now something like that is never going to go anywhere certainly Democrats are never going right. to support it but the fact that Republicans feel like they need newer proposals than they've had in the past I think that you know if these Democratic women are able to draw more attention to the issue, then you might see some some movement on something that there's been pretty much no movement on since 1993 when you passed the Family Medical Leave Act, and you have the 2020 presidential candidates, many of whom that are announced that are women. Mm. Elizabeth Warren just put out a child care plan, right. and you'll see others of these senators, you know, putting out ideas on paid family leave. Kirsten Gillibrand is huge on paid family leave, so. Well, you know, even on attention. the Republican side, you've got Ivanka Trump, right? Yes. Oh, and I mean, the rest of the Republicans are not listening right, to fine, her. Right, but, but, but right. she yes. may triangulate them before yeah. this is over. Perhaps, perhaps. I think that she does work with Rubio and Lee on this idea of borrowing from Social Security. She wanted something in the, the their big tax cut bill and did not get that, but they were able to, con through sort of her pressure, I think it helped convince them that they should expand the child credit, yes. which is what Marco yeah, Rubio right. Uh, was pushing. So, yes, I think, you know, the fact that she's, she cares about it expanded, is, but not all of which was refundable. Right. So, you know, the fact that she cares about that is your area. Absolutely. So the fact that she cares about it maybe made Republicans do something that they might not have done well, uh, in the tax bill. Yeah, this sounds very interesting to have people bring additional policy ideas that are actually being discussed in a serious way to the table. I mean, this Republican idea of flexible workplace hours you know, I don't know anything about it, but it sounds almost like Scandinavian for a second. I mean, <laughs> like, let's let's just have more ideas. That's that's very interesting to me. Um, is, is there a, is there evidence um, women in Congress are more effective legislators? So it's very I know the hard. metrics are like ridiculous yeah. hard to measure. It's really hard to measure that. So Craig Volder and Alan mm -hmm. Wiseman have been trying to put together a legislative effectiveness score for some time. And when they look at, at women, I think they've found that women were more effective when they were in the minority. And they say that maybe this is because women are a little bit more consensus oriented. So when you need the help of the majority, you, you can get more done. But I think they said they were actually less effective when they were in the majority and, and less effective when they were doing women's issues type stuff because, and I think it's because women's issues type stuff is the most controversial. So, I right. mean, healthcare is the most controversial you right. can get in terms right. of trying to, to pass anything. Uh, so that definitely makes you less effective. And w when they had, uh, for most of the time period they studied, they had less seniority. Yes. So if I don't have the the positions in, in the subcommittees and the, I mean, the committees. I, I, I think this stuff's impossible to measure. Like, legislative effectiveness is like insanely tough to measure. But I did see something recently where people were talking about how Klobuchar is considered a highly effective senator. Um, and there's also like just a natural sort of like you can imagine natural Jackie Robinson effect where the women who get to Congress are going to be better right. um, because of the constraints that have held them from getting there. So the well, ones who do make it are going to tend also to be like better than the Also like a quasi-immigrant effect. Yeah. You have to band together and that like... Yeah. I mean, you know, so I mean it would be right. a natural assumption that they might be overall better politicians than sort of... Random. Yeah, I mean, Amy Steigerwald and Jeff Lazarus have a have a book that basically yeah. argues that that they say that that women when they run are more vulnerable than men uh, in terms of you know that they get more challengers to them in the primary. 
uh, and the general and that it's just a harder road for them and because of that they have to work harder when they're there and so they find that uh, particularly when it comes to constituency service that women do more constituency service they're trying to get more projects home they sponsor more bills overall so just kind of the stuff that makes you look after you that women are doing more, more of, it. of that. But it's hard to, to measure, I think, this question of effectiveness because there's so much that goes on in Congress that you cannot see. So if a woman right. is involved, or a man is involved in you know, just the development of an amendment, or just the development of something that becomes part of the chairman's mark, right? Because really, if I want something to get through, I want it to be in the chairman's mark so then my name's not on it, right. but it's in the bill and it's harder to get out than right. if I have to right. go put it on as an amendment. So maybe I'd get more publicity putting it on as an amendment, but if I want the policy there, yep. going through the chairman's mark is the way to go. And the problem that we have as political scientists is just the things that are public that you can measure, you know, the sponsorships, the co-sponsorships, those things measure preference very well, but they don't really measure effectiveness right. as well. Because sometimes yeah. you want the policy, not the credit. Right. Yep. Right. Yep. You'd like both, and you'll certainly maybe have a press release that right. says that, but people aren't following all the press releases as well. You know, we haven't sort of found the way to uh, automate that in terms of the question of policy effectiveness. Yeah, Do so Holden's research looks at, like, you know, majority women, they, they sponsor more bills and a wider variety of them, things but like that. But that's just Sheila Jackson. But, right. <laughs> <laughs> but I digress. Screws uh, the, screws the, the uh, whole curve. Well, and that, you know, for minority women, his research is that their, their um, legislative efforts have gotten through more of the legislative process um, than minority men. Um, but yeah, I mean, this, is, this stuff is really notoriously hard to measure, like what true efficacy looks like for exactly the reasons you identify. How do you uh, think about Klobuchar's reputation as a bad boss? I think there was a lot of backlash. Certainly, right. was my first thing I thought of is that when you see that you know seven out of the ten highest turnovers in the Senate are female senators, that this isn't really necessarily about the senators. That this is some sort of structural feature of people, perhaps powerful men on the Hill, not wanting to work for a female mm -hmm. boss or having difficulty interacting. Do you have a? Yeah. So I mean, th that question is interesting. So when I was uh, so when I was doing sort of the research for my Senate book, I would hear a lot about how this particular woman is a difficult boss and that particular woman is a difficult boss. And the Washingtonian used to r rank them, and it was always Barbara Mikulski yeah. and and Snarlin Arlen, as he was called. Were the two uh, hardest bosses. And when I'd interview people about it, one thing that they would say to me is that. A lot of the women, particularly that that were in the Senate, you know, came from a generation, and you know, still where you had to work harder to get to that point, and you're in a, a position where there's not a lot of women, and so you feel like you have to prove yourself. And so, if you constantly feel like you have to prove yourself, it means you feel like you have to be better prepared. And so, they would talk about how well you'd go into a committee hearing, and such and such woman would have her staff, you know, preparing five binders of information, and they're staying up all night preparing all of this information because she needs to be expert on everything and then such and such staffer for a man would tell them oh you know I just typed out a little memo this morning and we discussed it we didn't you know he didn't even read it and you know he comes right. in and he's gonna think of the questions as he's there so there is a certain perhaps sense that the women feel that they need to show you know because you're being judged both as a senator and as a female senator that you need to show that you're smart and you're well prepared and you belong here and that makes you want to be hyper prepared which is very difficult on staff 
So I would think that, you know, some of it might come from that. Uh, and in Amy Klobuchar's case, you know, some of it might come from that, the, the stories where, you know, she does talk about how her staff hasn't prepared her enough for something. And then some of it is, you know, bad behavior as a boss. So there's there's gender aspects and then those. there's, yeah. you know, yeah. just aspects I mean, that are I do feel like boss. we could name tons of people who have better reputations at Hill's bosses, but like mm-hmm. the most public and widely known and reported ones tend to be the women. Um, you know, I, I, in both House and Senate, there are terrible places to work with male representatives, too. But the ones that kind of have that cachet around the Hill tend to center around the stories about the women, particularly Murkowski, yeah. who had just a hideous <laughs> reputation, right. and Sheila Jackson Lee in the House, who just has... Those two are just, like, above and beyond anyone. Yeah, interns quit out of her office yeah. in the past. I don't know if it's gotten any better recently. And it may be deserved, but it, I can't break this feeling that part of the reason it's so public is because they are women. Yeah, I think that's part of it, too, because, I mean, I can name a couple of guys. I mean, Rick Boucher from Virginia, he used to throw things at staff, right? But people that didn't... It didn't get out. That didn't get out yeah, in the yeah, same exactly. way. People didn't care about it in the same way. It was not necessarily as big a deal. Um, you know, it was kind of ex- expected that powerful men were going to be that way, so you just let it go. Yeah. Like, I think men had a hard time with powerful women. Yeah. Um, oh. So they complained about it more publicly. Not necessarily publicly, but the rumor mill went out. Yeah. I've always thought that... I mean, being a senator from California is incredibly difficult. I mean, think about how much you have to know and how much you have to do. I always told people, if you want a job, go to a California office. There will always be a job open there. Not only because they have so many jobs, but because it's really hard. It's really hard and yeah, so they yeah. burn people through. And I'm not sure that's because the bosses were bad, just because the situation was tough. As opposed to, you know, the Delaware guys, they don't have quite as much to have to worry about. Or the Wyoming guys, it's a little bit easier task there. <laughs> Vermont. Vermont's supposed to be very nice. Right. <laughs> Although the lady is supposed to be a very nice boss. Right. But, but the Sanders, I can see that. Uh, yeah. Sanders has his moment. Yes. Yeah. He's a little, but he's but he's you know his own party. So uh, right. already he's speaking to. His he own is party. his own party. That's right. Not Republican or Democrat. <laughs> Different drummer. So what are you seeing going on now? Um, you're seeing all these new women coming in. What do you think about how they're doing versus how the new men are doing? Or is there any difference? I'm not sure there is a lot of difference. I think we're hearing more of the new women because they're, especially on the Democratic side in the House, a couple of new women have much higher profiles. Yes, certainly. So we've gotten this far in the podcast without talking about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, right? Here we go. What was the time time again? (laughs) (laughs) So I think that... there's, you know, there's there's two crops in this particular freshman class. So there's the more liberals like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the progressives, and then there's the more moderate. So there were several women that won in seats that were held by Republicans. I mean, part of the reason that you have so many more women is because they won open seats and they won as challengers. Who in And there Iowa? were more of them, right. There were more of them and four in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania had no women and now you have four women. And part of that is the redistricting, you know, that created kind of opportunities for them. And a lot of those women, they don't want to be big media stars and face of the Democratic Party and be tied necessarily to Nancy Pelosi. Or these days, they're you know Nancy Pelosi is yesterday's news for Republicans in terms of who to make the demon. Now you want Alexandria Ocasio Cortez and Rashida Tlaib. But uh, so those women, I think, are much more focused on serving the district, trying to build a reputation for themselves. You know, Abigail Spanberger in uh, Virginia. Uh, Mickey Shirelli in New Jersey, right? These people hold seats that were held by Republicans. And so they need to find a way to show themselves as moderate, as willing to compromise, 
you know, they don't want Medicare for all. Uh, so they're socially liberal, but fiscally a little bit more conservative. And I think that Pelosi, you know, Pelosi gave a subcommittee chairmanship to Abigail Spanberger, even though she didn't mm. support her. For speaker. For yeah. the speaker. Yeah. So I think yeah. that she sees that, you know, these are the ones that she needs to be able to keep around. And some of those seats are going to be very tough to hold. I mean, Lucy McBath sits in Newt Gingrich's seat. Right. right? And Lucy McBath, uh, you know, is an African-American woman whose son right. uh, was killed that made her a gun control activist. And she beat Karen Handel, the Republican, by a very small margin. But that seat was held before Karen Handel by Tom Price and then, you know, Newt Gingrich. So that's going to be a very difficult seat uh, to keep. So those are the ones that I, that, uh, I think kind of determine the majority. Yeah, the majority makers. Right. Is what they call. right. But then Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is, is just a phenomenon in herself because, I mean, Matt, you're the social media guy, right? <laughs> I mean, she At has... At least in this room. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I'm the AOC of this podcast. Is that, is that what I'm hearing? That's what we're going to do. Like, we're going there today. That's the quote I'm going right. with from here <laughs> on out. <laughs> studying and in your presence on social media, you know, that that uh, she has more followers than Nancy Pelosi, oh, yeah. right? She has more followers. By all the leadership by added together. Right, combine yeah. and multiply. All six right? on the DNR. Well, I mean, it's not just that. It's she the interaction her. of her followers with social media is far higher than even people who have higher followers. Yeah. I mean, she, gave she has class, people right? literally engaged with her on a level that... You know, even Trump isn't. You know, yeah. like he's, she gave he's a class to the to the Democrats. So you had a freshman giving yeah. a class to the more senior Democrats on you know how how to engage, and so she's able to harness sort of media attention in a way that no freshman ever and, has. And I'm not sure that's necessarily gender based as much as it is generational. Yeah, I mean, a couple of years, about ten years ago, you had a switch where for every single staffer on the Hill, right, if you've been there longer, you got paid more. Chiefs of staff for people who have been there for 10 years got paid more than chiefs of staff for new members. That was true for every position but one. And that position was for new members coming in about 10 years ago, this flipped over and the computer operator, who also then started becoming the social media person, got paid more in a freshman's office than they got paid in somebody who had been there for 10 huh. years. Okay. And so you've continued to watch that go on, whereas now... It, and I started my career as a computer operator, and let me tell you, it had nothing to do with social media 30 years ago. But what has happened is, is that is now morphing, and you're having these social media people being communications people, but also being computer people, and you're watching this, this fascinating phenomenon where the new members have figured out, I don't have to write letters to answer mail. I can do a 90-second video explaining my point of view and I can send that clip back to people via email, right. and I've just saved so much time for my staff. If you've been here for more than four years, you don't know how to do that, right? Right. But these new people do. And so while I see Cortez has this particular, Casio Cortez has this particular, I'm not sure it's gender-based as much as it is generational. In terms of sort of you're used to kind of living your life yeah. Right, right. Yeah. right. Yeah. The, yeah. I mean, the I've, mediums through which they do politics. Yeah, I mean, I've seen her interviewed saying, well, you know, I've been living my life this way all, all along, right. right? And so this is how I, I do things. So, I mean, as a Congress scholar, you know, when, I, when I'm hearing she's going to live tweet the congressional orientation, I'm like, woohoo. <laughs> 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 right? I'm here for it. But, you know, I do. Well, I, she, I, you know, she's just, she's interesting in a lot of different ways. I mean, she's interesting from a communications standpoint, but you know, she's really, she's also contributing in a serious way to the policy discourse. I mean, 
whether it's, you know, uh, we've made it how far without talking about um, the, the Cohen hearing. Um, you know, she's contributing very substantive questions, which reflects a staff that works very closely with the committee staff, as well as has paid attention to what's gone on on the hearing up until she speaks towards the end of it, um, and getting uh, answers that will then become the basis for uh, additional inquiries, yep. um, avenues of inquiries that are substantive and not just grandstanding. I mean, if for I mean, I know that our our viewership probably. You know, has some of them have watched congressional hearings, but there's a little bit of grandstanding as soon as you put a no, the deuce a, you said a little bit. <laughs> you know, as soon as you put a camera in the room, gambling going on. In the one of our room. one of our speakers likes to say that like as soon as you've got the jumbotron out there and you put some, like as soon as you got that, everyone thinks they, they can dance, right. and it's like the same thing with Congress. <laughs> um, but she's you know she's contributing substantive uh, you know responses during oversight hearings, she's contributing to the policy discourse on everything from, you know, the Green New Deal to kind of shifting the Overton window on tax policy, talking about a top 70% marginal rate, you know, whatever you happen to think about that, that widens uh, the lens of what's possible to talk about by a significant amount. Um, You know, this is, this is, this is unusual, you know, like I, I I don't think, I don't think it's all flash and dancing, although she dances better than I do, obviously. Um, But, you know, she's, she's contributing to the policy discourse in a very serious way. I mean, I I think the, the interesting thing to me is that there's this sense that there's a lot of new Democratic women and that sort of AOC is representative, but to me it's the diversity of women ideologically in the Democratic Party now. Oh, yeah, yeah. You saw that in the Cohen hearing, because you had AOC and Tlaib, but you also had, who be night, Katie Hill, right, yeah. right, from California. Yeah. And when you take people like her or Spamberger or Wexton or Finkenauer or Axney, right, these are people who are, Mikey Sherrill. again, yeah. in Republican seats um, who are not going to be signing on to an yeah. AOC agenda on, on, on the left. And so, it, to me, that diversity is interesting because Again, you're going to reach this critical mass of women in the Democratic Party where they're going to inherently have a variety of viewpoints, yeah. right? And they're not going to be sort of as narrowly ideological as a lot of people, I think, picture and easy women in Congress. Right. right, and I also, right, and easy to be pigeonholed. And I also think yeah, the I, other place that critical mass is going to come right to the fore is on the Democratic primary stages. Yeah. When you're going to have women with a variety of viewpoints across the stage. And I and I, I think that has to be a good thing Yeah. Um, to, to sort of, normalize this diversity of viewpoints, but I do think that the overwhelming focus on AOC and the media and to lead to a second degree has sort of uh, warped our view of like what the new Democratic women look like ideologically. I think that's true, and I think, you know, it, it is going to be hard from, for some of them to handle that because mm-hmm. you don't, you know, in previous years you didn't want to be tied to Nancy Pelosi, and Nancy Pelosi would present herself Republicans would present her as a San Francisco liberal, and she would present herself as a grandmother and, you know, someone who learned politics in Baltimore. Right? Because Baltimore Rough and tumble. Yes, right. didn't have the, the same politics. Charm City, man. Bring She's, your baseball bat. Hey, yeah. man, I, I used to work there for three years. <laughs> yeah, you kidding wow. me? Like, I walk down the street differently in Baltimore than I do in yeah. D.C. Yeah, you, weren't in the, you weren't in the nicer neighborhood. I was not in the ghetto, man. And I think that, you know, the AOC is the new I used to use bad San words Francisco at punctuation. Are you kidding me? <laughs> and, and that's, you know, what they're going to 
they're going to hang Fox News is already you know they give her more time her, than any other member right, hanging she's on her every right? word new, so on the one hand she is she's she's a freshman with outsized influence driving a narrative within the Democratic Party to get them to shift their attention to things that maybe they didn't want to shift their attention to necessarily I mean, she hasn't gotten on the impeachment train yet, right. but she is, you know, the Green New Deal, you know, and then you have Nancy Pelosi, the Green New Dream or whatever, even though Nancy Pelosi's always been pretty strong on climate change, because she's kind of trying to pull her back to the middle, clearly, because she right. knows that she has that Well, and, and to dampen that platform a little bit, I mean, and she's a, is, she's a first-termer. I yeah. Mean, she doesn't have a gavel. I mean, over time, her ability to control the message, I think, will go down somewhat. That's something I've been preaching for a while. But I will say, as Laura pointed out, I think what she did at the oversight hearing was really impressive. Um, either her staff went to committee staff and said, hey, what can we do to try to help push this? Or they figured out on their own where the question should be going. Um, but whatever the, the it was, re- reporting, she had, re- reporting has been that they've they've uh, her staff and committee staff have worked together very right, well, which, which I think which speaks a, very well the new member because it's absolutely. a learning curve and she's clearly hitting it. And and for a new member to understand they don't know everything and that the committee can be helpful to them even if they don't believe everything in the committee, that's a great possibility. And the fact that she's decided to cut the pay of her top staffers so she can bring her bottom staffers up, we'll see how that plays over time. I mean. Yeah. It's pretty low pay to begin with, and to get she good staff. She said that she would pay her pay interns too. Though, well, right? well, that they actually gave money to everybody. To not pay as much. She wants fifty. Yeah, she wants fifty dollars now. She wants to pay a year. That's not even. I mean. Yeah. Um, well, we've hit the fifty-minute mark. We're hitting, oh, oh, yes. we're hitting the end Should of people's commutes. Should we go around the table? Do people have any quick hits they want to do? Mark, do you have a quick hit, Laura? Um, the only thing I would say is. Keep your eyes on the budget debates as we move forward. Now that we finally have gotten this year finalized and we're moving forward, we do have a huge cliff coming up on October the 1st where if we don't reach some sort of deal, we are supposed to snap back $75 billion in defense and about $50 billion in non-defense. Now, as we were discussing around the office today because we're geeks, um, the enforcement of that wouldn't happen until early January, but this is about a 12% cut for the federal budgets overall if we can't reach a deal. And if you've been watching the negotiation patterns of this particular executive branch and this legislative branch, the, I take the under on reaching a deal. Uh, I would say that uh, the thing on my mind right now is that there's a sense right now that the only thing happening in Congress is oversight hearings. Mm. And to a large degree that's true because there's not a lot going on and we have more oversight hearings scheduled, more people coming in from the president's scandal or just generalized oversight of Milcon or other things. But I would remind everyone, and this piggybacks on Mark, that the president's budget will be coming out in a couple weeks. Uh, and when that hits, that is going to reset everybody in Congress around the one policy area that we are going to have substantive policy going forward. And that, of course, is the appropriations bills. And the budget looks to be, coming from the White House, one that is going to try and play a sneaky game with OCO funding, Overseas and Continuing Operations funding, to sort of pad the military funding without having to break the caps technically set in law. And that is going to be a major fight going forward, and that fight's going to start in about two weeks. Hopefully. Yeah. Well, and we'll get to see, you know, uh, Lowy and, and Granger working together on appropriations mm-hmm. for all this to, to, you know, bring it back to a second for the, to the uh, topic of our of our podcast. Um, yeah, and we're also going to see, uh, you know, the, the 2020 uh, nomination heat up as, uh, you know, the Democratic Party has everyone throwing their hats into the ring, including a lot of people who are very talented in Congress and therefore are going to spend less time in Congress because they're going to spend more time 
uh, on the campaign trail and the interesting politics that that might create when you have fewer Democratic votes in the Senate right. um, is going to be interessante. Let's, let me end this with a push to uh, get the women uh, locker room for the house gym. <laughs> and off to Michelle for your final thoughts. <laughs> I think what I'm really looking at is what kind of legislating goes on because you have a situation where this is supposed to be sort of the biggest gridlock situation because mm. House controlled by Democrats, you know, Republicans controlling the Senate. The Senate seems to be a nominations factory yep, mostly right. at the at the moment. Yep. And, you know, the House is, pass- is going to be passing things that end up being messaging bills on gun control, you know, on immigration, these kinds of things. Is it going to be possible to pass something maybe second tier that they can still agree on. And, and if I'm looking for something like that, you know, most people, of course, always go with infrastructure. Yeah, but, it's infrastructure week. Right. Yeah, <laughs> but, but I'm wondering, can you do something on drug pricing, right? That yeah. seems like yep. the, I mean, they just had a hearing in the Senate Finance Committee where they brought in the, the heads of the, the drug industry. Can Chuck Grassley work with Democrats in the House and come up with something that could, you know, start us on the path? Uh, to legislating on that issue. Yeah, We're going to get something done. And well, if you look, the industry is totally lawyering up right now or lobbying yeah. up, however you want to talk about it. They're hiring a lot of people to try to fight that. Absolutely. I'd love to see Grassley get his criminal justice reform pushed through too because that's serious and deserves it. Um, a big thank you to Michelle Soares for coming out. Uh, she has gifted us, I haven't given her appropriate hat tip for this yet, uh, Patriot 2012 uh, or, or 212 uh, Good beer. Good stuff. Good stuff. And uh, given the Speaker of the House, we have a San Francisco beer as well, Anchor Steam beer, uh, that we've been enjoying. Uh, A big thank you, and we'll uh, see you all on the podcast soon enough. Cheers. Thank you. Pardon me while I run to the bathroom.